The following episode contains descriptions of colonial and racist violence. Hi, and welcome to 99 Questions, where we try to decipher current discussions around restitution, colonialism, and the relationship between museums and civic societies. I'm your host, Vivian, and yes, you've heard right, we're accompanying the 99 Questions discussion series at the Humboldt Forum. In the 99 Questions podcast, we will give you more insight by providing you with interviews and conversations featuring guests from all walks of life whose expertise Work and interests are connected to our podcast. For this episode, we interviewed Nazima Karmadine, who had been part of the 99 Questions panel discussion, Law versus Justice, on the complexities and opportunities of restitutions. We asked her about what the right to culture means when objects are dislocated from their homes and if cultural diplomacy could be a useful tool to promote restitutions or not. Nazima also tells us about different concepts of belonging and what the notions of guardianship means for cultural objects in Sri Lanka. In this interview, we also learned about the statue of the Buddhist goddess Tara held in the British Museum since the 1830s and what this loss of Tara means for Sri Lankans. Welcome to 99 Questions, Nazima. We're happy to have you here. Thank you, Fivan, and it's my pleasure to join you and all your listeners on this show. Nazima Kamardin holds a PhD in philosophy from the University of Colombo, where she is a professor in the Department of Commercial Law. She has done extensive research in the field of cultural law and intellectual property law, with her original research focusing on post-colonial and post-conflict perspectives. Nazima's research interests also include international law, biopiracy, traditional knowledge, trade and investment, environment, research ethics, and Muslim personal law reform. In the debate over the restitution of objects taken during colonial occupation, she has examined how legal norms have affected the rights of home states. For that, She has presented research on cultural diplomacy as a tool for negotiating the restitution of cultural property. In addition to her teaching and research activities, she's also a member of various commissions and committees in Sri Lanka. Nazima is also the author of two books, Global Trade and Sri Lanka, Which Way Forward, published in 2016, and Biopiracy's Forgotten Victims, Lessons from Sri Lanka, published in 2019. Nazima, this October, the 99 Questions Dialogue Series hosted an event highlighting legal perspectives on the matter of restitution. In this discussion, you pointed out the fact that the right to culture is a universally accepted right. You were thereby referencing the various legal frames, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, or the 2001 UNESCO Declaration on Cultural Diversity which acknowledges that people and communities should be able to access, participate, and enjoy culture freely. Looking at Western museums, which own, for example, cultural artifacts, and withhold a vast part of the material cultural heritage of the global south, this right is certainly in jeopardy. 
I would be interested in hearing your thoughts on this again and perhaps understand how the concept of human rights and particularly the right to culture might highlight the ethical and moral dimensions of this debate. Thank you for your question, Fevin. The right to culture has been acknowledged as a human right, as you pointed out, by the UDHR, and Article 27 states that everyone has the right to freely participate in the cultural life of the community. Again, Article 15 of the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights recognizes the right of everyone to take part in cultural life. Again, according to the preamble of the UNESCO Universal Declaration on Cultural Diversity, culture is supposed to be at the very heart of contemporary debates about identity and I think that's very important for us to all identify how important culture is in our own identities. There are also several other conventions such as the one on safeguarding intangible cultural heritage, on the protection and promotion of the diversity of cultural expressions, and the protection of the world's cultural and natural heritage, as well as the Hague Conventions on the protection of cultural property in times of armed conflict. And all of these deal with the right to culture and cultural identity. By extension, some of these deal with cultural property as an intrinsic part of the right to culture. So I think that globally, it is quite well accepted that the right to culture and thereby the right to cultural property is a human right. The next issue, of course, is whose culture is whose right? Do I, for example, have a right to access your culture? And do you have a right to access mine? Or is it something we can deny each other if we want to? There is an argument to be made that there's a global dimension to culture and that cultural diversity must be encouraged. But there's also a feeling that there are certain groups who are closer to a particular culture and it is probably their prerogative to exhibit and own their culture. Whether someone could deny another the opportunity to wear garments, speak the language, follow the customs and celebrate the rituals of one's culture is a matter of interest. I believe that while there is a right of all peoples to access culture and that that should be encouraged, the primary right is for the holders of the original culture to be able to enjoy their culture without restrictions. In that case, it is not ethical to deny people the right to use and enjoy the objects that embody their culture while these objects are kept far away from their countries of origin and available for others to view, often without recourse to context. Especially in the case of objects of veneration, like statues for example, there are rules and norms about where you can stand in relation to such an object, which direction you must face, how you must be dressed, which are generally not observed in the museums and collections that they are currently housed in. Could you elaborate on this a bit? For example, what do you understand by restitution? Restitution in international law is a concept that follows the establishment of an internationally wrongful act. 
In order for an act to be deemed internationally wrongful, several criteria must be established. Firstly, there must be a wrongful act which is committed. Secondly, it must be imputable to the state. And thirdly, it must result in damage. The remedy of restitution comes from the Latin term restitutio in integrum, which means to restore the status quo exactly to what existed before the wrongful act took place. Today, we are seeing objects being returned with no legal establishment of the wrongfulness, imputability or damage. Most of the home states of cultural property are not worried about this because they are very happy to have the objects back. But, in my opinion, this is not really restitution, though we are using that word very heavily in our discourses. So, Nasima, what is your opinion in the case where restitutions actually take place, but ownership is not really recognized? Yes, so there have been several instances of return of cultural property in the past few years. I think these have already been documented and, as you mentioned, they have been celebrated because they have been the result of delicate negotiations, perseverance and persuasion by many stakeholders across the board. It's certainly really heartening to see that, but the problem is that it's still very ad hoc. There's no uniform basis for acknowledging the home state as the owner of the cultural property, and certainly the host states seem to be unwilling to do so. They are still operating on the basis that the objects belong to them because of the legal system that prevailed at the time the objects were taken, and that they are doing a favor by giving some of them back. Then the question arises, why would you do a favor to some but not to others? Then that is favoritism and that's not really a fair basis for anything. If at all, it will create a new kind of colonialism and cause further resentment among the home states of cultural property. So there's a certain sense of cultural diplomacy at work, as it has largely remained a conversation between states. You pointed out that these forms of restitution pose a risk and that there may be underlying interests present as well. So in your view, is cultural diplomacy a useful tool to promote restitution or not? Yes, Feven. Now, cultural diplomacy is a term that has undergone quite a lot of transformation and I think misinterpretation. In the 1960s and 70s, in the absence of a legal framework for restitution, many countries formally requested, through diplomatic channels, the return of their cultural property. However, with time, it morphed into a system where the host state strategically doled out cultural objects to the states of origin in return for more favours, in the form of investment or development projects and so on. It was akin to piling insult on injury, as now you had to give a concession to get back what was intrinsically yours in the first place. I find that this sort of thinking seems to be quite acceptable, as I recently saw that Greece has requested the Elgin marbles as a loan from the British Museum. So these examples have made me take the view that cultural diplomacy is not only ineffective, but also dangerous as it prevents all home states of cultural property from having equal rights to restitution, 
and instead almost pits them against each other in a competition to curry favour with the host state to get back these objects. On previous occasions, you have talked about the notion of guardianship concerning the caring of cultural heritage in Sri Lanka. Could you extend on this idea again for our listeners and perhaps how the idea of guardianship as opposed to ownership could be legally embodied in such a way that it could still stand as such in the context of restitution? Yes, certainly, Febben. The concept of guardianship was introduced to Sri Lanka when Buddhism was first brought in. Prior to that, and Sri Lanka was not a Buddhist country to start with, it was accepted that the king was the owner of his realm and he could do whatever he wanted, presumably including killing or destroying anything that he wanted. The first lesson taught to King Devanampiyathissa by the Arahat Mahinda was that he was the guardian, not the owner of his kingdom, and that every living being, including flora, had a right to live and to be protected by him. According to the Mahavangsha, which is the great chronicle of Sri Lankan history, Arahat Mahinda reminded the king thus, The land belongs to the people and all living beings. Thou art only the guardian of it. The extension of this concept to royal property meant that the king did not appropriate any objects that were created for the benefit of the public for his personal use. Even if a gift had to be given to a visiting ambassador or emissary, the king usually commissioned a new object. An existing object was never given and that was a very strict rule. Parks, tanks and gardens were all created for the benefit of the public. Places of worship were the same and the king saw to the upkeep of these places. Coming to our present discussion, I believe that guardianship brings with it the responsibility to look after the object for the benefit of someone else. Unlike ownership, which gives one the right to use or abuse the object as he pleases. How this is relevant to our current discourse is that according to the principle of guardianship, even if sovereignty changes hands, the ultimate beneficiary remains the same, and the new ruler would then be tasked with the same duty as the previous one, and that is to preserve the objects for the benefit of the beneficiary, in this case, the people of the country. In such a case, there could never be a justification for removing the object. It is the concept of ownership that allows the conqueror to walk in and claim everything that the previous ruler owned. So it's my argument that the cultural property of Sri Lanka never belonged to the kings and so could not belong to the colonial overlords. They always belong to the people and the colonial rulers have violated the principle of guardianship by removing these objects. Therefore, according to my understanding, there is no legal impediment to restitution of these objects since the beneficiaries are still living in the home state of the cultural property. Now 
Nasima, during one of the previous talks, you spoke about the statue of Tara, a beautiful 8th century gold and bronze sculpture from Sri Lanka that was looted by the British colonial governor and taken to the British Museum in the 1830s, where it has remained ever since. Could you tell us who Tara is and what it means for such a statue to be missing in Sri Lanka? Tara is an important figure in all the various schools of Buddhism. According to the Theravada tradition, which only regards males as being able to advance to the highest state of enlightenment, she is regarded as the mother of all Buddhas and a source of compassion. In Mahayana Buddhism, which does not differentiate between the capacity of men and women to reach the highest stage of enlightenment, she is regarded as the female embodiment of Avalokiteshvara, who is the Buddha of compassion and who waits until all beings on earth have ended their karmic cycle before seeking enlightenment themselves. As a symbol of hope to women all over the world, it is said that when she reached an early stage of enlightenment in one of her previous births, the monks had advised her to pray to be reborn as a man so that she could continue to even greater heights. But she rebuked them, saying that man or woman are only denominations created by confusions of perverse minds in this world. She then vowed to always be incarnated as a female for as long as she continued in the realm of samsara because there were many men who served as role models of the enlightened path but owing to human ignorance and male arrogance, few women. She continued to advance in spiritual wisdom power and compassion, meditating continuously, and by doing so, she freed infinite numbers of souls from the suffering of rebirth and death, finally becoming the goddess Tara. Though Sri Lanka has predominantly adhered to Theravada Buddhism, there have been periods of time when Mahayana Buddhism was also practiced here, and it is during this time, somewhere around the 8th century, that this particular statue in question was created. It was an object of public veneration and this statue is the only known example of this size that now survives. The loss of Tara means that Sri Lankans are unable to appreciate the story and inspiration of Tara and adapt it to their own lives since this particular statue represents one of the most beautiful incarnations of Tara who also appears in other forms. How inspiring would it be for young women to know that they are just as appreciated, just as valuable and just as capable of reaching perfection in spirituality, something that has constantly been denied to women in religious discourses all over the world. And also, how many of those who are able to view this statue in the British Museum do so because they are inspired by what she represents. Is she today the most significant embodiment of female power and grace or merely a beautiful topless woman?
Nasima, as we're coming to an end, I wanted to ask you if there are any concluding remarks. Thank you, Fevan. I believe we need to approach this subject with a great deal of compassion. As much as the home states of cultural property are victims of the colonial past, so are contemporary societies that are host states of cultural property. We need to acknowledge that the era of colonialism was a brutal one and that in order to bring in real reconciliation, we have to erase the negative influences of that era completely. We need to start by recognizing the ownership of cultural property as belonging to those nations and people from whom it was taken, even if the legal system of that time sanctioned it. We then need to work out a method whereby the right of those people to their cultural property can best be recognized. And in order to do this, there must be consultation and equal partnership in the negotiations. Ultimately, I believe that good faith can bring about great results and that healing the historical injustice is the best way to enjoy and diversify our cultural identities. Thank you so much, Nasima, for being a guest in our episode, for explaining the urgency of restitution to us. And I personally want to dig a little bit deeper on the history of Tara. And I really hope that she is going to be brought back to Sri Lanka and not. And I hope she's not going to stay in the UK because I think people back home miss her. And um, yeah, I thank you so much again. Thank you very much. It has been an enjoyable experience and I wish you all the very best. We want to thank you, our listeners, our guest Nazima Kamardin, and I also want to thank our curatorial team, Julia Richard and Michael Diminger. This is a production of the Humboldt Forum 2021.